Hey, Will I Like It listeners, do you like a good cup of coffee, one that's rich, flavorful, and ethically sourced? Then you need to check out Dynasty of Coffee, a Yorkshire-based online coffee business that offers a range of expertly crafted blends. All of their coffee is roasted to order to ensure freshness, and they're committed to nurturing the well-being of both individuals and the planet. Whether you're a fan of a bold, strong coffee or a smooth and mellow one, Dynasty of Coffee has a blend for you. Their four main blends are inspired by different British dynasties, Saxon, Viking, Tudor, and a decaf Hanoverian. So if you're looking for a delicious and ethically sourced cup of coffee, head to dynastyofcoffee.co.uk today and use the code SAXON10, that's SAXON, all capital letters, 10, at checkout for 10% off your first order. Enjoy! Welcome back to the Will I Like It podcast. I'm your host, Craig Brooks, and today I'm with Dawn Nelson, otherwise known as DD Storyteller. And we're in the Earth House for the Ancient Technology Centre, yeah. which you might have seen in some of my other videos. So welcome to the ATC. Thank you. It's a lovely place, isn't it? Yeah, it's stunning. A bit special. Stunning. Yeah. <laughs> we're very privileged to be filming here. If there's a bit of background noise, it's because they're filming a small project outside and doing some fighting and battles. So. Hopefully it's not too loud for us today. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I guess we should start off with really, because you do a bit of reenactment and a bit of storytelling. I do, a, yeah. A bit yeah. of. <laughs> a bit of, it's what I do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so uh, shall we start with which came first? Was it the history and the reenactment or was it the storytelling? Okay. Um, uh, so, yeah. Uh, what, what did come first? <laughs> Um, so, yeah, well, yeah, it is a, it is a bit chicken and egg. So yeah. cause it's kind of it's been a more of a sort of organic uh, an, an evolution yeah. uh, through my um, career, if you like, as a storyteller. But definitely the stories came first. So <clears throat> um, I've always I mean, I've done a, a lot of different jobs in my life, um, but uh, I was in the NHS for about eight years and I left for uh, a variety of different reasons. Yeah. Um, but that I started writing a lot more during those last few years in the NHS. I was writing a lot more and I started writing my own uh, set of murder mystery novels uh, called the Blake Hetherington Mysteries, <laughs> which are not available anymore. <laughs> but, uh, okay. uh, but they were they were um, sort of like my creative outlet, if you like, yeah. during a time that was incredibly stressful, where I was yeah. working in a very stressful environment because I worked for the ambulance service and then within the um, operating departments. Um, and... Um, that's pretty full on. It is, yeah. And absolute respect for those guys that have been in those jobs for 20 or 30 years, but I just couldn't do it. So, um, so, so yeah, I ended up leaving, um, uh, for, like I say, for a variety of different reasons, but the, the main one being the amount of stress that was in those jobs. So originally you were just writing for yourself? I was just writing for myself, yeah. And then I self-published. Yeah. Um, so then people started buying my books. I was like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> Might be onto something here. <laughs> and I started going to mainly local craft fairs because, as you know yourself, that if you uh, write something and you self-publish it, you've got to get it out there and, and yeah. sell it yourself. Yeah. So I was going to local craft fairs trying to build up a name um, 
locally uh, because yeah. that's where you've got to start. <laughs> um, and somebody approached me and asked me if I could do children's storytelling. I've always been very comfortable talking to people. I've always been the person at um, uh, dinners and uh, uh, you know parties and whatever else that has given, um, in, uh, I guess, a unsolicited information downloads, <laughs> shall we call them, <laughs> about you know um, odd arcane facts and yeah. folklore and story. That's always been me ever yeah. since, probably ever since I was little. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. um, uh, so I've always been quite comfortable talking to people on, on this uh, sort of basis. Mm. I'd written some children's stories, which I knew would work quite well as performance stories. Um, and so I started working with them. They wanted to do some engagement on uh, what used to be an old tank training ground uh, just outside Borden. Um, yeah. And the army had moved out and they needed to do some community engagement on that training ground whilst there wasn't any um, infrastructure there. Yeah. So there wasn't uh, like a visitor centre and a cafe and all of that and a park and stuff like that. So they were going to put that stuff in place. Yeah. Um, but I, so I had basically some sand and pine trees that I needed to bring to life for people. <laughs> And I did that with my um, uh, interactive stories where you knocked yeah. on doors and I had a sheepdog puppet named Hugo and we, saw, and we did some pirate treasure hunts and some yeah. fairy door trails and all those sorts of things. Um, and then I sort of, uh, during that whole time, I'd been reading a lot more about stories because my murder mysteries were based on folklore and uh, they all had um, like random themes through them like um uh one one has a theme of bees so i looked at all the folklore of bees and you know all the, yeah. the stories and connections between bees and stuff so um i'd already been doing that and i sort of wandered into the territory of the grims and then i thought well these guys are interesting and wandered back further to basilei and uh um straparola and madame dolno and all, all the storytelling um, all the story collectors and storytellers yeah. of old, if you like. And then, of course, you end up going even further back once you've got that far. So I then got all of these stories that I wanted to tell. Um, and I started telling them as, tra as a traditional storyteller, not just the interactive stuff. Mm. And then I came across Hundas through Butzer because I got that um, link with the heritage sites. Yeah. And I then started writing. Um, basically, uh, Royal Victoria Country Park approached me and asked me if I would like to apply for a consultancy they had. <laughs> and I said, is the fighting happening already? <laughs> and I said, um, well, you know, I've only been doing it sort of 18 months, but, yeah. but I do these stories for these guys and this would be the sort of thing that I could offer you. Um, and I, I won the tender, I got the tender. So, and from there it sort of escalated. So I was doing these stories with heritage sites, came across Peregus Hundas. Yeah. I thought, well, that'd be quite cool to tell stories with them. Yeah. Uh, and so I started doing a reenactment and stories with Hundas, which I've been doing for probably about five years, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the lockdown period was a, a little bit interesting, yeah. but we still got to do stuff. Yeah. We were one of the only reenactment groups that, because of our brilliant um, events coordinator, Jen, we were able to do some uh, stuff uh, within the um, guidelines that were, we were given at the time. I think I didn't come along to a Harrogus event till after lockdown. Oh, yeah, I think it was, yeah. A couple of years ago, yeah. yeah. So that's probably when we we first met. And then it's just sort of oh, taken yeah. off from there. And I've ended up working with museums and heritage sites. And um, and so over the last 10 years, really, um, I have my work has evolved to be yeah. fundamentally heritage interpretation through storytelling in yeah. all its different forms. So yeah, there you go. That was a bit of a long story, but no, no, it's good. <laughs> so your, your initial approach to storytelling, 
you didn't have any training or anything like that that was just you no i mean i i when when you say that i have always like i say told stories i've always been very interested in history yeah. and folklore and the more arcane aspects of, of history um and uh i was a musician so i'm used to performing so i played three different instruments when i was younger i yeah. was always involved in the drama groups at school so that whilst i don't have any official training although i have been to forest row and done some storytelling training with the storytellers the very experienced storytellers there um it's it's i haven't got a formal uh, drama background yeah. if yeah. you like but I, i've been a performer probably all my life really just in various different ways yeah, so, yeah. i mean it's, that's yeah there's nothing wrong with no, no, my really. approach yeah i've been open with people the whole time i'm painter and decorator really yeah got into reenactment and that's led to doing food and stuff um, mm. and so yeah there's like I just find the stories behind how people start doing these things interesting yeah and everyone is different you speak to two different storytellers or even I had I've probably had three or four blacksmiths on now and yeah. every one of them has a different way that they got into being a blacksmith absolutely and isn't that part of the joy of it because yeah. we're all different creative people and creative people come from all walks of life that's yeah. what makes us creative and we have something to bring to the party so we all bring different yeah. stories with us so yeah yeah, yeah. And that was kind of initially the idea with the podcast as well was that people kept saying to me well i'd love to do what you do home brewing and making food and it's like well you can yeah. like yeah. there's nothing i don't have a license to do this no. <laughs> i just decided to do it back on and our ancestors didn't you know yeah i said i was a musician and yes i did have some formal training for that but at some point somebody picked up a violin and went wonder what this does <laughs> and gave it a go. you know or a piece yeah. of wood with a string on it you know put a string on it thought i'll i'll do that and see what what happens if i do that so somebody thought about it yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so we've got some cider mulling at the minute would uh -huh. you like to try some? Oh, yeah definitely this is actually this is based we can go into a bit I think I've mentioned this when Jason was on. So this recipe came about due to the wassail. The wassail, yeah. That we did online during. Yeah. Well, wassail. So this is the hot Saxon cider from my second book. And that was initiated because you'd said about wassailing. Come on and yeah. And you'd come to my kitchen and I'd mull this recipe. And yeah. I was like, well, I'll do it, but I want to make my own. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely fine. And Even so better. Ended up. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to trying it. Thank you. Because so far I've only seen it virtually. Yeah. <laughs> So it's um, cider with juniper berries, rosemary and honey. Nice. You try not to get any juniper berries in your cup. Uh, yeah, I, I, we don't want any choking. They're a bit soapy as well, aren't they? Yeah, they can be. Um, usually I put thyme in as well. I know you're driving, so I won't. Yeah, no, you. not too much. That'd be perfect. Thanks to drop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. It'd be nice to warm my hands as well. Wassail. Wassail. I'm not sure when wassail starts officially. It's normally January, isn't well, it? Well, here we go. Technically, wassailing um, these days, in terms of wassailing the orchards, it happened on the old 12th night, which was the 17th of January. Yeah. But these days it happens on the new 12th night, which is the, um, the 6th of January. Okay. Depends which yeah. calendar you're looking at. So the, Gregor when it, when the, yeah. the Gregorian calendar took over as the 6th. So... But there are two in this country, there are two different from what I could see when I did some research. And mm. please, if anybody uh, would like to correct me, I have not got a problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> the two ways of wassailing that I came across yeah. were the wassailing that's wassailing the orchards, which happened down in the West Country and Somerset and you yeah. know where they had most of the orchards. Um, 
the other type of wassailing was going, and that's with the Gloucestershire wassail carol. You know the one, wassail, wassail, all over the town. Our toast it is white and our ale it is brown, that one. So if you listen to the whole carol, it talks about knocking on the door and getting the butler to bring them out ale, but the butler won't do it, so the butler goes down. <laughs> and the, uh, um, and the, the maid comes and opens the door for them and they get, yeah. and they get the ale. And that is where they think it then morphed into carol singing. Yeah. So technically, within December, they would have been wassailing doors and asking for arms. Because all of these things, sort of, especially during the Victorian, especially during the Victorian time, they sort of came about all souling, wassailing. It all came about because the poor really didn't have anything. And winter was a hard time for everybody. It was mm. a time where you went and knocked on the doors of those who had more than you who had a lot of money and were able to give arms and a bit of food uh, during that time. Mm. So, you know, we wish you Merry Christmas. They'd have to bring out figgy pudding. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so all that, those sort of traditions came from essentially giving alms to the poor. Um, and it was a legalized form of begging on the doorstep, mm. basically. So, so yeah, so there is a little bit of um, potential was sailing during the Christmas period, yeah. but it was more doorstep was sailing than orchard was sailing. It's interesting when you, because I know that the history gets a bit vague as you go mm. further back. Yeah. The origins of the word is an old English. It's Saxon, it? yeah. It's good health, yeah. Um, mm. I think it first appears in Beowulf. Yes. One of the earliest, at least. Yeah. And that's when the, it was written, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's it. We don't know how long they are using it for. But, no, exactly. Um, yeah, it's so, and drink hell. I should have responded drink hell when you said no, it's okay. hell, so. Well, there's a wonderful word in Old English called beership as well, which is like, so if we weren't friends, we just... Yeah drank together it would be beership <laughs> so, i like that it's people that you go to the pub with you only ever see them in the pub yeah. you've got a beership yeah yeah beership <laughs> that's nice i've not come across that one before yeah yeah and i mean i did uh, i guess we may as well talk about christmas a bit whilst we're yeah, on sure. the subject yeah, yeah. um because i did try to have a look into it a little bit and then we don't know really know how they were celebrating it from no. a saxon perspective no. we know they were celebrating it on the 25th um, and it's as um, it mid midwinter's. So the tw the twenty first to the twenty third is midwinter Yule. mass, I think. Yeah. Is what they call so it, that so Yule would have been like around the shortest day, and that would have been yeah. when they had Yule tide and and Yule. But yeah, the Christmas would during the Christ as the Christians bought it. Yeah, like you say, Christmas. I think the yeah. first use of Christmas in England was four hundred years after. They started celebrating sort of Christmas, if you like, right. and they were okay. calling it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think it was Midwinter's Mass. Okay. Here, whereas Yule was more of a Viking. Viking thing. Okay. Yeah, or yeah. northern thing. Oh, that's interesting. I think the Germanic regions was were doing. Yeah, because that's how I understood it. It's the Germanic origins yeah. of was Yule's Germanic heathens, if you like. Yeah, and it's some kind of feast celebration. I know people often think they were eating boars and stuff. And, not necessarily. It would have just been what was hanging from the roof, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not a lean time of year, is it? If you've filled no. your larders with all your different meats and mm. stuff, then it is a good time to hold. Well, it's... there isn't um, isn't November meant to be blood blood month because that's when you slaughtered your yeah. cattle because um, yeah. you didn't want to feed them through the winter. Yeah. So it was the ones that you didn't want to feed through the winter that you slaughtered. Mm. Them. So yeah, it would have been meat plenty. And then I think in the ninth century is it ninth century uh alfred the great yeah that's ninth mm -hmm. century isn't yeah. it? he um 
he made it law that everyone had to have the 12 days of Christmas as holiday. Yeah, I did. Uh, I remember that vaguely. I, I couldn't bring that to mind, but yeah, yeah. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, that was his approach to it, was everyone has to have a holiday. Yeah. Well, good man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if people aren't having holidays year round like we do now, I mean, we no. have a lot more free time than they would have done. And so I guess the idea of saying, well, at the end of the year, you will get 12 days off. Yeah. It's been a huge. And then later on, during the sort of much later, during the uh, later medieval, it would have been a time when the um, Lord of the Manor, if you like, was able to give all of the people that worked for him and within the community would have been able to give them all food yeah. uh, and a big feast. So they would have all gathered together to do that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I didn't bring you a feast today. No. <laughs> but, but I'm sure you can guess what I bought you. Yeah. I mean, I mean these... it's not in disguise or anything. <laughs> no, they look amazing. We've got some mince pies with, the mince meat was made, I'm not sure if it was last year or the year before, but you know what these things are like. They it doesn't matter, sure. they get better, yeah. don't they? Um, and then there's some peppernut biscuits, or the German name is, I never know how to say it, Pfeffernus? I don't know. It's, oh, now you're asking. Okay. <laughs> um, it's after the PH. P-A-G-U, Pfeffernus, it translates as Pfeffernus, probably Naus, isn't it, Pfeffernus, I don't know. No, <laughs> not up on my German, I'm afraid. No. Um, but yeah, so they're, they're essentially, I think a lot of people in England would call them German gingerbread. Yeah. So like the softer. Like the, um, the uh, I can never say that one. Right? <laughs> I think <laughs> they're basically the same situation. Yeah. Le, le bunction. Something like that. Yes. <laughs> We've done our research. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to eat them at any point, feel okay. free to tuck in. I've made thank them you. just for you. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I will do maybe when... Uh... I figured it was um, appropriate mm. as this will go out on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we should go. There's a lot of shouting. There is. <laughs> um, Shall I try one of these while they're shouting? Yeah. These look delicious and they're perfectly round. So uh, look at that. I can't get my cakes that round. What did you do? <laughs> there is a recipe in my Eat Like a Halfling mm. book. They're brilliant. Um, and I remember these from childhood. I mean, if we're talking about Christmas and stuff, like, you know, it's the sort of thing my nan would buy from, mm -hmm. I think, Lidl or somewhere would have, <laughs> would have done them. So I'm going to have one as well, actually, because mm, they are very. Very nice. They're um, delicious. They're the very trick light. to getting them round is actually you make balls. Okay. And you put them on the baking tray, and because they've got butter and things in, they sort of melt. They, they melt cook, into the round. And they yeah. become... They still don't end up that round when I do them, but there we go. You must have the baker's touch. I've done them a few times. Mm. <laughs> mm. Oh. What's that? Is that ash coming down from the... It must just float up and then come back down again. Hmm. It's actually quite warm here. I was expecting us to be Lovely. cold today. No, nice. I'm very pleased about that. Um, yeah, so back to, to you and your storytelling. Um, one of my other questions was, where do you draw your inspiration from? I know you've kind of covered this a bit already. Yeah. Um, and I think I can kind of guess, but is it, I suppose some of it's from Norse mythology, mm. you've got nature and, and other things. So, yeah. yeah. It's hard to say. It's another one of those chicken and egg questions, isn't yeah. it? So um, the stories, it might be a better way to put it, mm. the stories that sing to my bones are the Celtic stories and the Norse story, the Scandinavian stories. Yeah. There's something, they call it um, uh, 
and the Tibetans, I think it is, call it ancestral chi or the Buddhists, sorry, call it ancestral chi, QI. And mm. it's like this knowing within us all, in our bones, and a, a lot of it is something we would just call instinct. Yeah. So it's what we've learned as humans. And that's why a lot of us remember, sorry, I'm digressing a little bit here, but that's why a lot of us remember like negative experiences yeah. because that's how you survive. You remember the negative things so that you don't get knocked over, so that you don't go and annoy that person again and they try and kill you. <laughs> so that's why you remember that. That escalated quickly. Yeah, yeah, escalated quickly, didn't it? <laughs> I am a storyteller. Don't but, annoy Dawn, people. <laughs> he will kill you. <laughs> but, you know, in, in, a, in a time when there is plenty that there is now, um, it is good to remember the things that you can be grateful for and the yeah. things that are good that happen to you as well. It's just harder sometimes for us to do that because we are wired to remember the negative things. Yeah. So that, and that's the thing that's in our DNA and, and part of being human and who we are and, as an animal, essentially a biophilic being. Hmm. So I guess... That is what I draw my inspiration from, is uh, from that um, feeling that you get when something really hits home and sings to your bones. If, yeah. if the story does that, that's going to be an important story for me. Yeah. Um, and I'll often find that, I'll often, I, I mean, I read hundreds, I mean, I don't know, I haven't worked it out potentially thousands of stories a year with, with the books that I, I read. Yeah. Um, because unfortunately, that is the main place where I can get the stories from. I do go and listen to storytellers as well. That's incredibly important. Um, but there's not so much, I'm not able, it's not a place where I can go where I know there's going to be somebody who has a lot of stories in their head, who's, you know, uh, um, maybe had that lived experience that yeah. I would love to hear about. Um, uh, but... Um, so I tend to get most of my stories from books, but I know, so I read a lot of them. And then if I'm out walking, because I do a regular loop at, at home, and if I'm out walking and I look at the seasonal changes, that story comes back to me because I've remembered it because of the yeah. environment that I'm in or something spoken to me from the environment. So that's what I mean by a chicken and egg. Yeah. I need to have had the stories in my head to, to then seek the inspiration from nature i mean nature is always very important to me yeah but it will trigger those memories of the stories by watching the rhythms within nature and our history and heritage so did that answer the question it was a kind of a little bit of yeah, it's a bit of, <laughs> bit, of, bit of both isn't it yeah, yeah. so ancestral chi yeah. <laughs> it's your inspiration <laughs> yeah absolutely if a story sings to my bones yeah. then that's uh, that's what i'll that's what i'll tell so yeah so because uh, you said earlier about Telling, you started more telling children's stories? Yeah, I did initially. And yeah. I think people see, uh, and, uh, mm, I don't know, people see uh, a petite, for want of a better word, woman, and they yeah. think, oh, children's storyteller. <laughs> is that your favourite kind of stories to tell? Or? I, I think my favourite audience, and this is a real cop-out, okay? <laughs> I think my favourite audience is families. Because yeah. I actually love connecting with everybody. I love yeah. connecting with the children and hearing what they have to say and their unique perspectives on the world that have not yet been tarnished by the, the grind of daily life. <laughs> um, and I love the reaction that you get from adults, adults who have not ever given themselves permission to sit and listen to a story since they were probably eight or nine. Yeah. And you suddenly, because their child is there with them, they suddenly have this permission to listen 
And a lot of my stories, I don't talk down to children. I'll yeah. use the same language as I'm using with you. Obviously, I don't swear. <laughs> to be very clear, yeah, I use clean language, <laughs> but it's the same language. Yeah. And if I think there's a word that they haven't quite understood, then I will um, just, uh, so I will say that word in three different ways, if you like, so that yeah. they are then able to understand what I've just said. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it, the, there is something for the adults to listen to as well. It, it connects with them as well. Mm. And the amount of times that adults have come up and wanted to chat to me as well as their kids about the story, it's like giving adults a key to a door that they locked a very long time ago. And, uh, and I love that, mm. uh, being able to facilitate that. Yeah. Do you find particularly today, because people's kind of attention span is very short. Oh, can be. So do you have issues with people paying attention to stories? Do they wander off or? Um, interestingly, I think there are, there's more knowledge about people who are neurodiverse mm. and that we all have different ways of listening and different mm. attention spans, regardless of whether or not we have been trained not to by that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think as long as you give them enough of a preamble so that they get settled, and then they're focused on you. Mm. Um, and if you, if you watch them, if you interact with them, if you make sure that they are involved in the storytelling process, it's not a passive thing. Yeah. Even if it's just you talking and you don't ask them to interact, you just check in with them every now and then. Um, then I don't generally have a pro It's very rare that I have a problem with somebody listening, with somebody concentrating. And if that is the case, it's quite possible that there's something else going on there, um, that they've had a bad day or, you know, or that they are neurodiverse and this really isn't for them. Yeah. Um, and I never, ever have a problem with somebody getting up and leaving partway through a story. I'd far rather they did that mm. than made their child or themselves sit there through something that's just, they're just not enjoying. Mm. And, you know, when our ancestors, or sorry, the people that walked this land before us, because ancestors is a difficult word, isn't it? When they sat round the fire and told stories, not everybody would have joined them. There would have been some people going, this is not for me. I'm off to fish in the ice hole over there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think as a storyteller, as a performer, you get a fairly thick skin and you yeah. don't worry so much about it. And you just let people listen in their own way. There is also, like I say, listen in their own way. Mm. There was also, I remember doing a story, um, a performance story for a heritage site, one that I'd written for them. And there was this adult who, with, who brought their children and they were sat in the front, they had their arms crossed, looking really fierce. Uh, and the whole time I couldn't get them to crack a smile, not once, okay, even though what I was telling sometimes was occasionally funny. Mm. Couldn't, did not crack a, a smile at all. They looked like they had been dragged to this performance against their will. And I thought, oh my God, this is not great. But there was lots of other people enjoying it, obviously. Yeah. Anyway, you know. <laughs> they came up to me at the end and they said, that was superb. <laughs> was so you can't tell. <laughs> no. So you cannot tell. Kids, yeah. really, really honest. They'll stand up and go, not enjoying this. Think I'd like to go and do something else. Adults, you just can't be sure about. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. Yeah. I guess it's well, like talking from a historical perspective, you're saying about telling stories around the fire. 
these stories would have been things that people were telling each other all the time. Yeah, so you'd go, yeah. Oh, I've heard this one before. I really yeah. like this bit. And you'd kind of tune in and out, I guess, yeah. different parts. Like somebody's greatest hits. You yeah. know? You'll find that all storytellers have the sort of, I don't know, top five stories, I guess, that they tell. Yeah. Um, and that's like their, their greatest hits. That's their A-sides. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It, um, and, you know, everybody would have had stories to tell. It wouldn't. There might have been one person within the group who was particularly good at it. And you'd go, all oh, right, that's enough of you now. Can we have so-and-so tell stories, please? Um, but everybody, it would have been a, would have been the way you entertained yourself. Yeah. It's like... And imparted um, information, yeah. you know, and, and, um, yeah. and history. Yeah. Well, there is this, that thing with storytelling as well, isn't it? That a lot of them are cautionary tales. Absolutely. Don't go out into the woods. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think some of them, if you look a little further than that, than that surface, don't go out to the woods, is do go out to the woods, but play by the woods rules mm. and you will come out a better person. <laughs> that's, that's what they say to me, those stories. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. I've not heard it put that way before. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Do go into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> Magical things happen in the woods. <laughs> so if we're talking about woods, we should talk about your book, I think. Because oh, you've okay. your book, Adventures in Nature. Oh, yes. Yes, yep. which very much ties in with the idea of children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nature true. and your inspiration for stories. Mm. Um, so I guess we start with where the idea for that came okay. from. Okay. So... There is a challenge on Instagram called the 100 day challenge. And I can't remember who it was. I'm really sorry, but I can't remember who it was, who I can credit with coming up with that hashtag or that concept. Mm. Um, but when I was at the beginning of my storytelling career, um, I had a lot of ideas. Uh, well, I still do. But, you know, I had a lot of these things, these little stories that I've been telling, certainly to my little one, who was about two or three at the time, yeah. um, that I wanted to put somewhere. And this 100-day challenge was to do something creative for 100 days. So I wrote 100 stories in 100 days. Wow. They were just short, like 500-word stories, sometimes 1,000. But it was, and just, because the key with writing is getting the words on the page. If you've got words there, you can do something with it. Yeah. You can't make bread without dough, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to have the words on the page, yeah? So I got those stories down. And then I sort of wondered what to do with them for a few years. I thought maybe I would self-publish them, but then it was like I was doing a lot more storytelling. I was getting out and about a lot more. I didn't maybe have quite as much time to invest in that um, because you then got to go and sell them somewhere. Um, and a hundred stories is a lot in one book. Mm. Um, so I was kind of thinking about it. And then I realized that the History Press had a storytelling arm. Like That's where I was getting all these books from with story. There's some absolutely fabulous books out there if you're interested in uh, folklore and stories of particular counties, um, of uh, particular genres, particular um, cultures, then that, that's the place to go is the History Press for their storytelling books. And I just approached them with this idea that, because I then started connecting, I was telling these stories at events and connecting them with activities. Um, and so I suggested that I did the season, we did them as a seasonal stories mm. and that I uh, originally went to them and said um, we could do, uh, um, we could even do 365 if we wanted to. So I could, you know, I knew I'd done 100, so I knew I could do more. <laughs> 
Um, but that was a that was a little bit epic. That pro yeah. project would have been. And so we sort of scaled it back with the help of. I mean, Nicola Guy is just wonderful at the History Press. She's yeah. um, the commissioning editor there, and she will help you mould your idea if she thinks it will fly. She'll help you mould your idea into what will be a viable book. <laughs> and so what we came up with was four stories and four activities for each month that would bring each story to life and bring nature to life through those stories so it would connect the two in that same sort of thing that I was talking about where so one of the stories is about a little wren that has to uh, make six nests, or it's three in the story, yeah. um, has to make three nests for his jenny wren uh, and then she chooses which nest to um, make her, well, to lay her eggs in. Um, and, uh, and it's a sort of story about finding the perfect place for home, but it also has some factual nature in it because wrens really do. The male wren will go and repair a load of nests and make up to six nests every year. And then the Jenny wren comes along and she chooses which one is the best one for her to lay her eggs in. And, you know, can you imagine being that little wren that's gone to the effort of making those six nests and then every Jenny wren's like, nah, mate, no. they're not right. <laughs> <laughs> Poor little wren. Yeah. So there's things like that yeah. within it. And there's sometimes they're like little lessons, like there's a story with three carrots in it and they all, there's like a, a tiny little sweet carrot and a long thin carrot and a knobbly bobbly carrot. And, but they all end up, spoiler alert, they all end up being eaten. So just to show that we all go the same way, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like, you go the same way. So it's just little... Hopefully we don't get eaten. No. <laughs> no, hopefully not. Not in this do. <laughs> What have you got in that pot? <laughs> no, so um, yeah, it, it just teaching little life lessons like that, but just in little ways. Mm. But the latest one that I've done, if I may be so bold, <laughs> is um, Stories of the Sun. And that is taking the similar con concept, but for adults and an older audience. Um, and uh, it involves, so I did this project, because um, these things often come out of a project, is I got up uh, at, and watched the sunrise um, for 12 sunrises throughout the year, once a month. Um, and I nature journaled during that time, um, paid attention to the folklore that was out and about when I was um, uh, out there mm. um, in this. And I, I spend most of the time in this one particular field and I get to know all the different animals that are there, in particular one um, roebuck, which gets, uh, um, which I developed quite an interesting uh, friendship with, for want of a better word. <laughs> um, we eventually, by the end of the project, recognise each other, <laughs> so it's nice. But um, uh, I basically put that bit of nature journaling in there, and then there's a story that connects. So I use stories from, most of the time I stick to European stories, to so Scandinavian and the UK. But when mm. it comes to the sun, you can't really ignore Egypt and the Aztecs and, yeah. and, and that sort of fundamental sun worship that would have would have happened in Egypt, definitely. So I've got some of those stories in there as well. So that's um, and and again activities to help you connect with that. So uh, so yeah, it's um, multi layered. Yeah, and that's coming out in March. That was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is like I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just that I'm more aware of it being a reenactor now, but people's connection with stories like there do seem to be more people telling stories again there is um i think there's definitely i mean there's always in the cultures that have always had stories like a, a magic or been in touch with the magic of the land like wales and scotland yeah um definitely definitely um there's always been a strong storytelling community um in england i think it's taken a little longer for it mm. to build momentum but definitely in the 10 years that I've been doing it 
it's not, p people are less likely to ask me, oh, what's that when I say I'm a storyteller um, than, th than they were when I, when I first started. Um, you don't get, tell us a story then. <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah. not as much as you think. Yeah. No, it's not like a stand-up comedian that goes, come on, tell us a joke. It's yeah. not like that, because they know that whatever the story is, they're going to have to sit there and listen. So, you know, it's a bit of a... Um, How long have you got? Yeah, exactly. It's a bit of a lottery asking that question of a storyteller, to be honest. <laughs> or Russian roulette, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I don't, not as much as you think, yeah. but yeah. Um, they maybe ask me what sort of stories I tell. Yeah. And how I got into it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, I know somewhere between 150 and 200 stories. Um, and I, but I couldn't tell you them all. They're like in a filing cabinet in my brain. So I have to go through and pull them out at various points. And it may be that I can, for want of a better word, feel my way through a story that I haven't told for maybe two years. Um, but you know, the part of being a performance storyteller is that you rehearse and that you and that rehearsal doesn't look like the sort of rehearsing you do for a play or, or a drama group. It, yeah. Wandering out into the landscape and thinking about your story and how you connect with it. And you wouldn't physically read the story out. No, no, I would. I would maybe if I was really unsure about it, go back to the book that I found it in or go back yeah. to the podcast I found it on. Um, but ultimately, um, I don't uh, remember. I don't remember stuff off rote. It, it's it's like having uh, a star constellation, so you know where the points are that you need to get to to make that shape and that story, yeah. and then you you tell it. So you remember those points, and then you fill in the bone the bones, and it, so that's a bone. Sorry, and then you fill in the muscles as you as you go along. And I think you'll find that most storytellers do that. Um, but uh, like I say, there's a lot of stories that I know. Um, but if somebody wants me to tell a particular story that's not on my A sides, like I said, then I would have to go away, do, you know, mm. a bit of. I guess that's the thing, though. If you know an event's coming up, you know what you need to. Exactly. You learn what it is. Yeah. So, like the Christmas stories that I'm telling this year, yeah. I may be some of those, and the one that I'll tell at the end of the podcast, I haven't told since last Christmas. So. Spoiler. She didn't tell the story in a bit. Yes. We haven't mentioned that yet. No. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, yet there are stories that you only tell at certain types of year or if, so, uh, but I have been in situations where I was in a museum and I was telling, I, I'd learned a particular set of stories um, and they were connected with the exhibits in the museum yeah. and they were mainly for young families. Um, and then a, a a coachload of students who were, I would say mature students, um, came in uh, and they were really interested. And they asked me what I was doing because I was dressed like this. And they said, what, what, you know, what are you doing? I said, I'm a storyteller. And they did say, oh, can you tell me a story? And of course, well, yes, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> but of course, I didn't really want to tell them the story. I mean, I could have told them the story of the fleeing pancake, which is like the gingerbread man, but with yeah. a pancake. Um, but I didn't feel it was quite the right story for them. And as a storyteller, that is part of your job is to know what sort of story your audience wants and to, to see your audience um, and, and choose a story that's appropriate for them. Um, and so uh, because I have the experience and I have that A-list, list of A-sides, that I, I was able to tell them one from, from that list, which was Kerrigan's Cauldron, which is just one of my absolute favorites to tell, which is often known as um, the origin of Taliesin rather than Kerrigan's Cauldron. Uh, I often change the 
So I often change the stories of the, the names of those stories because um, those stories are often actually about the women and the, and the goddesses within them. So uh, I like to kind of highlight like the story uh, Math Ab Mathonui from the Mabinogion. Uh, for me, that's actually about Bedueth, who's the um, flower-faced woman. Yeah. And so I, I tell it as the tale of Bedueth. Um, but, and you'll find that storytellers will change things. And um, what connects them and what sings to their bones with their ancestral chi. Mm. So, yeah. Do you mince pie? Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I think we'll move on to the questions that I ask. Yeah, everybody. yeah, absolutely. No problem. And then, yeah, Dawn's going to tell us a story oh, yeah. at the end. Mm. Very nice. You're going to tell me like there's kidneys and liver in these now, aren't you? <laughs> Bit of brain. <laughs> and then I'm going to make a really bad pun and say, but that would be awful. <laughs> um, I can't remember what's in them, to be honest. Thanks. <laughs> but I wouldn't make anything with meat in it because it wouldn't store. Obviously, the fruit will keep. Yeah. So, because I know you're a vegetarian, and I did check beforehand, because what I've done before is made venison mince pies. And it's basically this with venison mince mixed mm. in with it. Probably quite nice, actually. They are nice. Yeah. They are nice. But then I got worried about how long the meat would remain safe mm. like that. So I made it as a separate fruit. Mm. No, they're delicious. The pastry is really good. Not even any um, suet in there. It's brilliant. Proper vegetarian. Mm. These days you can get vegetable suet though. That's true. Which is what I use in my mince pies. These don't have anything. They're just as I remember good. doing, there was pears. Pears and apricots that I chopped up. And then the usual mixed fruit, mm. almonds, brandy, I usually am. apricots because they had peaches, didn't they? I noted that there was some evidence that they had peaches, so I guess they might have had apricots. Do, do apricots grow here? I don't think so. I don't think they do, do they? No. Um, even peaches, I don't think they would have. No, but I read in your book. <laughs> I believe there's one. <laughs> there's one, an evidence of one peach. One peach was found in like, I want to say it was Hedby. Yep, that's right. You're right. Oh, Hedby. Uh, good memory. Do you think that was the inspiration for Roald Dahl's James and the Giant Peach? He heard about that one peach. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and it just escalated. <laughs> I don't know when it was found. It was, yeah. But no one knows how it got there. It just happened to be, it could be that someone went off raiding or trading somewhere and ate one and then just dropped the seed. Raiding for a peach. Well, no, but you just go, we'll take some of that. Isn't I it? just love that. That would be so whimsical. Just off to plunder this village for a peach. <laughs> the Viking peach raiders, have you not heard of them? <laughs> oh. But it does make you wonder how it got there. Mm. I mean, they went off to Spain and other places in Istanbul, so... Yeah, there's no reason why they... they... There's just no evidence, is there? That's the problem, is you can speculate that they... You'd assume if you found, because they're kind of woody, that they would survive. I mean, they don't break down in your garden if you put them in the compost or anything. No. You mean the pips? Mm. Yeah. Which is Stones, sorry, yeah. 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 So you'd think you'd find more of them? I don't know. You would. 
not just one. Hmm. And as you see, my conspiracy brain is thinking, how would somebody have made that peach stone look like it came from much earlier? <laughs> how would you manage that? Microwaving it enough might, <laughs> I don't know. But presumably they carbon date it. Yes. So, so, so it must be that old. That's what that I'm saying. Old. So there's no way you could fake so it. How did it get there? There's no way you can fake it. That's if they did carbon date it. I mean, they don't end up testing everything. No, maybe. true. But you would think that something as rare as that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sure you weren't intending to say that these were Viking mint spices. But if anyone watches my episode from Christmas no. last year, <laughs> no. I attempted on the last Christmas episode to make okay. a version of a mince pie that was plausible. Oh, okay. Didn't taste anything like a mince pie. Because you don't have the brandy and the spices in there. No. They were nice. No. They were more like fruit pies. Yeah. And I cooked them in a clay oven, which is something they could have done. Mm -hmm. And it was just for fun, just to see yeah. if you could do it. They did a sort of, I think they potentially did a sort of egg fruit tart, didn't they? Like a... I mean, things like custard, they, they were eating egg custards and things. Mm. So even custard tarts, they're plausible, but you're probably going to be going down the more higher status. Yeah, yeah. Someone showing off. Yeah. Yeah. How much uh, money? This yeah. pastry, I mean, it's basically the same as a bread dough or a dumpling, isn't it? Mm. We speculated before. We lost an episode. I've oh, probably no. mentioned this before. Actually, I lost three at the time. It was recorded this time last year. Okay. And oh, we, I remember we that. We made yeah. Viking yeah. pasta. Just to see if they could have. <laughs> we were being kind of, you know, a bit facetious about it and kind of saying, well, and we got talking about the clothing and stuff and how most of our clothing are based on only a couple of finds. And I'm like, so there's no reason that they didn't. They were probably making dumplings. And what is yeah. a dumpling if you roll it flat? It's pasta. <laughs> yeah. But that's what experiential, experimental, whatever you want to call it, archaeology is about, isn't it? It's about giving it a go based on what we know they would have had. So... Um, yeah. The early forms of pasta definitely predate the Viking Age because they come from China. Mm. Interesting, I yeah. Yeah. I think there is a, there's a sort of, I think it's a myth that Marco Polo brought it to Italy or something like that. Yeah, that rings a bell. I think, again, going off the top of my head, half stories as we've already said. Um, but there is some kind of myth that someone oh, brought it from, from the though. east to Italy and they don't seem to actually be connected. I think that they probably independently. Well, it's like the, the, there's, there's a little bit of um, folklore about Indian pale ale, isn't there? That apparently we, it was like the ale that you made in your house, like yeah. the standard stuff. And that they, the East India Company took it across to India and they discovered that it heated in the barrels because it was heating in the hull of the ship. Yeah, so I have heard that. And, that. and that when it got across there, it was effectively Indian pale ale. Mm. Don't know, who knows? But uh, yeah, there's all sorts of, they're, they're sometimes the best stories though, right? As long as you're not actually telling people this yeah. is fact, yeah. then, yeah. you know. But see, I mean, but yeah. So love a little urban legend. Past <laughs> the noodles date back thousands of years. So yeah. potentially, were they making them in England or anywhere in Scandinavia? Maybe. Possibly. They'd have needed the carbs to keep warm. It's so. flour and water. I mean, you can make it with egg, but. You don't have to. Yeah. No, Baron yeah. Wilson will do. We made ours with blood. Oh, really? Just to make it no. Viking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was all right, actually. Didn't taste of an awful lot. It needed some kind of tomato basil sauce on there, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.
Right, shall we do the last questions and then we'll get you to do your plugs and stuff. Yep, let's go. And then Hopefully I story. set you up to sell a, tell a story. Oh. Uh, right, yeah, so if you had an unlimited budget, what would be your dream project? All right, yes, I did have a little think about this one, as you might expect. <laughs> um, so if I was being uh, altruistic, yeah. <laughs> um, I would love to like, hire out the globe, something like that, and just have like open mic for the world. <laughs> like, so everybody bring their stories to yeah. tell. And if you can't get here for whatever reason, then obviously it's a limited, it's an unlimited budget. So I'll get you here somehow. <laughs> and the, the, what if you get someone there and it turns out their story wasn't worth it? Oh, that they, they were awful. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because it was an unlimited budget. And surely that's what, what sharing stories is about, is yeah. even an awful story is a story. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, it'd just be yeah. just such an awesome way of getting people to come and tell their stories and start talking to each other again and have, community and yeah. you'd find cultures had shared stories um, or shared themes within the stories mm. and you'd hear you'd be able to hear how they told their stories and their histories and their cultures and 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 it wouldn't be and this could end up getting very very messy but it wouldn't be there wouldn't be no gatekeeping at all it would just be if you want to come and tell a story you come and tell a story and you know it's, and that it's not about uh plugging your work or any of that sort of stuff. It's just coming and sharing a story in a community space. Um, and I don't know how long that would take. I don't know, I guess we could hire it for a year. Why not? It's an unlimited budget, right? <laughs> Who cares? They won't be able to do Shakespeare in there for a year. <laughs> you pay them enough, they won't care. Because <laughs> you're saying like, you're not plugging anything. So I can imagine you at the end going, trying to shut people up and push them off. Well, yeah, but I mean, if they want to, you know, if they want to share their message, I, I just sort of meant like, to try and stop it from becoming commercial yeah. and for people just purely coming to... I've just got visions though of someone starting to like, so my latest book is good and yours is going, get off! <laughs> no plugs! <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, okay, maybe we could handle that in a different way so that rather than them plugging on the stage, you would have like um, a, a pamphlet for that day or a, um, like somewhere a place where they could have their books or you know so that afterwards if you were interested in that person's stories you would go and find them talk to them more and no, there's a low way. budget way you could do this right now what's that start a podcast oh you could yes yeah just online just get people just to randomly people yeah yeah around there around is absolutely it. but it does but it's not really that low budget because it involves my time yes. <laughs> sorry i'll just uh, um, hit the mic again it does involve a lot of time and yeah. um like I say, if I was altruistic, like yeah, just I just crack on yeah. and do it. But um, I, I do have to pay my bills as well. So <laughs> do you need to find someone? I'll pay the bills, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. The other thing that I would do if if I wasn't being altruistic, I was just focused on myself and my practice and my um, professional development. Mm. Is I would just go from Lands End to John O'Groats and I would collect stories on the way and actually go and find the people that were telling the stories, that had the stories, and not necessarily professional storytellers, but people, you know, interesting people in pubs that would tell you an interesting urban legend or... And yeah, these are the best stories. Yeah. yeah. And you just have the time just to... So, and, as, and I reckon <laughs> it'd be one of those things that would escalate. So as you set off, people would be like, mm, not really sure who this person is, but you can maybe go and talk to that person. Mm. Um, 
But as you worked your way along the route, people would start to hear about you collecting these stories and you started to have people tell you more stories and it would sort of escalate as you went up there. And you could do a podcast on the way. <laughs> so there you, you could. Go. Yeah. So that's my that's my two projects. I kind of cheated with that. But there's an altruistic one and a professional development one. You've got an unlimited budget, do both. Why not? What a good idea. <laughs> I can just I can just um, you know, satellite in, can't I, for the yep. for the performances in the globe. <laughs> yeah. Even screen it. at the back. Yeah. <laughs> Sat on your throne at the back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who have we got today? <laughs> yeah. There we you go. go back to the old sort of medieval thumbs up on the death. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you not entertained? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm just going to check some logs on the fire. Sure. You need to keep it going. We'll go that. out, otherwise, won't it? Yeah, and it will save me trying to relight it. Yeah. Um, right. So the next question is: Do you think you could survive on a Viking Age diet? <laughs> Again, I gave this some careful thought, and I may have overthought this. <laughs> So uh, now, me, right now, took me back to the Viking Age, plonked me there. Yep. I'd probably subsist on bread and cheese. That would be it. I might eat some venison um, because I don't dislike meat. I yeah. just um, am very particular about what I eat. So chicken, beef and venison, no problem. I've even, I'll even eat rabbit, actually. That's yeah. no problem. And actually, I do think that the most sustainable way to eat meat is game. And, yeah, it is. And, cook, and you know, And there should be more, more people eating it. Absolutely because we have a plentiful supply of it at the moment <laughs> a lot of it's being exported to other countries because yeah. people here don't eat things like venison so. yeah well yes uh it's very tasty folks eat yeah. venison um, so you don't you don't eat meat i don't it's not an ethical no thing. so uh, so well it is a little bit of both so yeah. if i do eat meat i try and make sure it's the um the most uh with the animal welfare in mind, the, yeah. the highest quality that I can, and I don't mean like in terms of taste, I mean, because it often is in terms of taste, it is that. But so um, I, if we have meat in our family, uh, it'll be, it's normally chicken, um, because that's what my little one likes to eat as well. I like beef, but I'll only eat a very small amount of it. My body just doesn't need very much of it. I was brought up vegetarian, and I think my body just doesn't really tolerate a lot of red meat, basically. So, um, uh, so I will, but it'll be, um, uh, I don't mean to plug them here, but they are very, very good. Riverford Organic, I get the, the meat from. Uh, I know it will be well-cared-for animals um, and sustainably sourced. So, mm. yeah, so that's what I tend to do. So in that respect, I probably could survive as a Viking um, with bread and cheese and meat, um, but I'm really not very good with kidneys and heart and liver and stuff. I mean, why would I want to eat something that's been filtering urine? I'm sorry, it's just not not my thing. So, <laughs> so, but that said, that's my modern sensibilities, yeah. if you like. So if I was actually a Viking, I'd probably be fine because I'd just have been brought up on that stuff and my metabolism would be different. So if you were raised on it, yeah. 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 So if I was raised on it, no problem. And I think if I went back now, I'd be like the fussiest Viking in the group. <laughs> They'd be like... Oh, don't bother with her. <laughs> Just throw her a bit of bread. <laughs> but um, I'd probably be going on that raid for the peach. <laughs> You're going to need a few. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's if I survived the first one, to be fair. I mean, you know. Imagine it turned out that that was just evidence. It turns out that someone had time-travelled at some point and not told anyone. Oh, yeah, no. And they say, don't leave anything behind, and they dropped a peach. 
Yeah. Oh wow. Mm, that's gonna, There's a story. No, that's going to take some thinking the time out. Traveling peach. Yeah. Time traveling peach. Wowzer. Yeah. So, is there anything you'd miss on a Viking Age diet? Um, so again, I thought about this. I thought about the sort of foods I ate because I mean, you could immediately say chocolate profiteroles. I love profiteroles. They didn't but, have those. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't have them at all. So, um, so I just wouldn't have known about them. You know, I, they would have had honey. And things mm. were able to be sweet, so it, it would be the sweetness that I would miss. But I wouldn't because it'd have the honey and things. Yeah, with the bread, I would be sat there with a jar of honey as well. They, they, yeah, they'd definitely be fighting me for that. Yeah. Um, so I thought about the things. My favourite. Done it again. My favourite foods. Yeah. Okay. And I love Italian food. And the main basis for Italian food is tomatoes and. Uh, Probably some potatoes, you, you know, if you've got, you know, uh, chips, basically, and things like that. Mm. Um, although I wouldn't say the Italians uh, would uh, hold that up as their finest cuisine, but you take my point. <laughs> so um, if I wanted to have things like a good... Um, so I, I, a lot of the vegetarian food that I cook as well has tomatoes as a base. So I think tomatoes is what mm. I would really miss because they just, they wouldn't, to our knowledge to archaeological evidence they wouldn't have had them there's no reason why they couldn't have gone and found a culture that did but there was no evidence that they did there is evidence they had olives so i'd be all right there <laughs> or that they, they did in the iron age sorry mm. so it could be that they did they had olive oil and things so they did yeah. have access to some more exotic stuff yeah. depends how much money you've got yeah. yeah yeah probably not a lot if i was left in the corner with the bread and the honey <laughs> and cheese oh, but i did tell a good story so you never know have it on you. I've been given a can of tomatoes. <laughs> Payment. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think tomatoes and potato. God, I love potato. <laughs> so the next question's fairly recent, and it actually came up after a recording here. Okay. So, yeah, which is, what's the weirdest thing in your kitchen? Yeah, I think um, it's probably me. <laughs> I don't really have a particularly weird kitchen. It's fairly conventional, I'm afraid. So it's probably me. But what I do have is on the windowsill, I do have like a little altar, if you like. So I wouldn't call it weird, but it is something that not everybody has in their kitchen, yeah. maybe. <clears throat> and that's um, a little uh, celebration because my mum, fortunately, she passed away uh, about nine years ago now. Mm. Um, and uh, as a way of remembering her, I put the meals that she first taught me to cook as recipes in this little picture frame. And then on the other side, although my husband's mother is very much still with us, um, I put the, the meals that he had first been taught to cook. So it's like a kind of little, and, and then there's a candle in the middle and I like the candle sometimes when I'm cooking. And, uh, and there's a little um, bridgeyard actually next to it, which um, is technically only for February time for pushing back the winter in February, mm. but she just seems to have taken up residence there. <laughs> so there's a little Bridgeyard there um, and, uh, and you know, some other bits and pieces that are particularly important to me, like a little fairy egg that my chicken, one of my chickens, if you, oh, don't, if you don't know what a fairy egg is, when uh, chickens first start laying, and, and even actually as they get older as well, but when they first start laying, they, they sometimes lay a tiny, tiny little egg. It's about that big. It's really only very small. Um, and it's the, the nice term for it is a fairy egg, but um, it was also known as a wind egg or a fart egg. 
because it's just them. Yeah, just because they're practicing to lay eggs. So I have just the first one that my little um, my little black chicken, who has three different names, incidentally, depending on who's talking to her. She's Caridwin if I'm talking to her. She's Midnight if my daughter's talking to her. Magic if my husband's talking to her. <laughs> she, uh, uh, it's her egg. So I have that next to So there you go. I'm the weirdest thing in my kitchen, but there are some other things there as well. <laughs> All right, what's the worst thing you've ever eaten? Ah, yes. <clears throat> well, I did, yeah, I did um, most recently yeah. uh, is the experience that we were chatting about earlier, which I will uh, say for the um, audience here. Yeah. Uh, my friend, I guess I'll still call her my friend, um, <laughs> just. <laughs> She uh, was in the I was in the playground at pickup. I was picking up my daughter um, from school, and she came across to me with a, what looked like a bag of sweets with sugar on them. And I do have a bit of a sweet tooth, I'm afraid. And she said, uh, "Would you like one? How are you with sour things? Are you are you like you know? Uh, do do you find uh, uh, sour things too much, or are you all right? And I'm, I'm actually pretty good with sour things. I don't really like chili and, and hot things, but sour things are all right." She said, "Oh, I'd have a go with these. They're really they're really sour." But so she did, to be fair, warn me. But these were another level. So I put one in my mouth and it just immediately, it was like, my whole body was like, no, this is wrong. <laughs> but unfortunately, because I was with my daughter, I was in a public place, so I wouldn't, I, I don't spit things out, it's just me. I might look like a Saxon, but don't always behave like one. Um, and also, I am forever telling my daughter that she's not allowed to spit things out. <laughs> So I couldn't spit it out, but it was the most horrendous thing. I mean, my whole body was trying to get rid of it. I thought I was going to be sick in the playground. It was terrible, most, most awful thing ever. And then I, I said to her, because I had looked at the ingredients beforehand, but I hadn't sort of clocked the amount of citric acid that was in it. So basically these things were put, like covered in citric acid. What are they called? I, it didn't even have a name on the front oh. of it. I mean, that should have given it away for me, really. And I said no, to her, why? I actually said, when I could eventually speak, I actually said to her, why would you do that to me? <laughs> I thought we were friends. Why did you do that? <laughs> and she said, oh, they're joke sweets. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a trick on my husband. Really. I said, well, I think you just did that. <laughs> so I shall never be taking any food off her ever again. No. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, whatever they were, they were some kind of joke sweet. Or if they weren't a joke sweet, wow, I don't know who would have wanted to eat those. But other than something like that, um, I think Brussels sprouts, controversially. I don't think that's that controversial. Well, I don't know. A lot of people like Brussels sprouts, yeah. don't they? But they taste, for me, and there is some evidence now to suggest that for some people this is the case, it, they do taste like nail varnish remover. I I, yeah. I want to know how you know that. Because you smell it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't Strange drunk, hobby. I have not drunk nail varnish remover. However, I do know what it smells like, acetone. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, basically mm. tastes like nail varnish remover smells. There we go. <laughs> I'll let you off. <laughs> uh, right, what's the next one? Um, what's the most memorable meal you've ever had? Most memorable meal. You see, you would think, you would say something like your wedding day, you know? Like beautiful meal that I got to choose, uh, all your friends and family there. So yeah, I would say, it sounds a bit cliched, but I would say like my wedding day. 
I can't remember what we had on the wedding day. Oh, I remember because we went through with the caterers because the caterers had this sort of various different budgets. Yeah. And one of them was like a lobster salad. And I was like, well, can you do that with crayfish? And then it'll be a little bit less expensive. Yeah. And they were like, what a great idea. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I remember things yeah. like that. And I remember having um, like an orange panna cotta for dessert and yeah. Mm. Just uh, what I also remember though is not actually eating as much of it as I would have liked because I drank a lot of champagne and I was talking and yeah but that is probably one of my most memorable meals. Others you know potentially when I went to Norway with uh, on a holiday with my husband um, Norwegian meatballs are delicious yeah. I have to say you know, as a vegetarian Norwegian meatballs <laughs> are delicious um, and I would say, sorry, I should say, I'm actually more of a flexitarian, should we call it that? Because I don't want to insult vegetarians, but it's not the case. Um, but they, I mean, they're really, really delicious. Trying the cuisine of a, of a different country is, mm. um, yeah, that's a bit special, isn't it? Being able to, and it was sort of this place, I think it was in Baylor Strand, uh, but it was sort of off the beaten track. And it was just sort of like a little cafe, which actually looked like somebody's house, but it was like a little restaurant underneath and just the most delicious, wholesome food. So yeah, yeah, there we go. There's a couple of them. <laughs> so the last one is you've died and your family and friends are preparing oh, yeah. your grave goods. What food and drink do you get to take to feast in Valhalla? Cheese. Everything is better with cheese. <laughs> Any particular cheese? Oh, what's my favourite cheese? Danish blue. It's actually quite apt. Mm. Um, I don't know whether they would have been able to make cheese like that safely i don't know not that familiar with danish blue it's basically a very strong it's a bit like stilton but it's softer and i don't think i'd like it no and it's very strong yeah Love probably danish not for blue. me no and um dolce latte is nice as well so like a nice blue cheese i think cambazola do like my cheese and of course you'd have to have some nice crackers so um i like cars Cheese melts, they're called. So cheese on cheese. <laughs> Double cheese. Cheese, cheese. Cheese has come up quite a lot today. Yeah, All right. I do like cheese. Maybe, I don't yeah, know, no. just, <laughs> just to balance it out, because we like to be healthy in the afterlife as well. Some grapes. <laughs> Let's take some grapes with us. And we're going to need something to drink, aren't we? So what would I, I can't be without tea. Love tea. Um, and whilst I probably wouldn't have had that as a Viking. <laughs> For the purpose of For this question, of we it. don't go down the Viking <laughs> route. It's whatever you want. Then yeah. it would, then tea. Yeah. Standard tea. Well, actually, Earl Grey is my favourite, but, you know, I, I, I don't mind. I'm not going to be fussy. Yeah. For the <laughs> sakes of the question, it's anything that you want to take to the okay. feast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. Cheese. Otherwise, as a Saxon, you might not go to Valhalla anyway. I don't. <laughs> Uh, yes, it's quite possible. Yes, no, it's quite possible. There's lots of reasons you might not go to Valhalla. However, it could be that if I told a particularly controversial story, it might start an argument that a battle ensued and then... They blame you for it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, if as long as I had a sword in my hand, then I'd be all right. <laughs> it sounds like you're at the door trying to blag your way in. <laughs> Definitely. But I started that for <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. What are you letting him move for? <laughs> no, no, I, I no. Because I know things about you, that's why you let me in. <laughs> that's what I'd say. I'm the holder of the history of this group. She knows everything. I know things about you, let me in. <laughs> I've got cheese and crackers. <laughs> <laughs>
So yeah, so we're going to plug all your social media quickly, but just in case someone decides to tune out, don't, because Dawn's going to tell a story in a moment. Yeah. Um, but you know, because I think some people tune out when you go. So where can people find you? And they, yeah, that's fine. Don't tune out yet. We'll get the plugs out of the way, and then. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So where can people find you? Okay, so Instagram is where I hang out most of the time. And you can find me on Instagram as at dd underscore storyteller. If you just type in dd storyteller, it will come up. Um, same with Facebook, uh, although that tends to just be, I'll be honest, I'm a bit lazy. It's a repeat of what I put on Instagram. I think most people do. So, yeah. yeah. So you can find me, whichever is your preferred platform, Facebook or Instagram. Uh, if you really want uh, to know what I've been doing in terms of work and contracts, you can find me on LinkedIn, again, as dd storyteller. Um, and my website is ddstoryteller.co.uk. And finally, I do have a Substack, which is, if you're familiar with Substack, it's like a newsletter platform. Um, it's, it's a little bit like blogging used to be um, in the old days, if you remember the old days of blogging. Back in the day. <laughs> Back in the day. And uh, it's, there's a free option, and then there's also a um, sort of paid subscriber option if you want to. But I'm very, very happy for you to, to support me as a free subscriber. That's great. And I send you a newsletter. And that is on Substack. And if you search for the best way to get there is to go to Substack, which is like it sounds, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com and then search for Keridwin's Cauldron. Keridwin as in the Welsh goddess, and Cauldron as in that thing there that holds our cider. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, go find me there, sign up. And your books are available. Yes, sorry, my books, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, it's hard to know where to stop, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my books are available. They are all published by the History Press. They're available in all good bookshops. Uh, and if you want to buy online, I always recommend bookshop.org or hive.co.uk because those two uh, websites not only have fairly competitive prices on the books, but they also support independent booksellers and bookshops that are on the high street at the same time. And not to give you more to plug, but you also okay. have a podcast. Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You may as well, Marcia. Yeah. You like podcasts, which you probably do as you're here. <laughs> You can find Stories from Law. Again, if you sign up to my Substack, that's where my podcast comes out on my Substack. So go and find that, uh, or you can just Google Stories from Law. Law is L-O-R-E as in folklore. There we go. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on <laughs> and for driving here. Oh, no, it's lovely. It's lovely yeah. to be here and to, and to see this wonderful space. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, we'll get you to read us a read us a story i did it again craig 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 we I do always do this stories we tell stories <laughs> where's your book <laughs> are you sitting comfortably craig yes no, i'm gonna get a minute's bye yes so the story that i'm going to uh, tell you is um called the cat on the dove Raphael. have you come across a cat on the dove Raphael before okay so this uh was a, a story that was collected by some scandinavian story collectors called as Bjornsson and mo which i think is absolutely excellent story uh, names for storytellers. So Asbjorn Jonsson and Mo, just to give you a little bit of background, one was a zoologist and one was um, a, a man of religion, a, a priest, whatever you want to call him. And they really did. So some storytellers, like the Grimms, you will hear that they went traveling around to collect stories. They actually didn't, but that's a story for another day. Whereas Asbjorn Jonsson and Mo, they really did travel uh, and they used their work, um, you know, where they traveled with their work as kind of inspiration for collecting these stories. They went on lots of walking holidays and things. So. This is a story called Cat on the Dovrefjell. Now, the Dovrefjell, if you're not familiar with it, um, is a place in Norway. 
it's sort of mountainous and then a sort of tundra as well. So it's kind of a mixed, challenging landscape uh, and there wouldn't have been a lot of people living there. And this story is set in a time when there were a lot of trolls. Uh, now we have trolls these days, uh, which are in a slightly different form. But these trolls I'm talking about um, are uh, the sort of mischievous, hidden folk that would live up in the mountains. The trolls love the mountains. Um, and unfortunately, as we have built more and more houses within the landscape, certainly the landscape of Norway, uh, there are less and less trolls because they don't like to get so close to um, humans. So if you think you haven't seen a troll before, that's because they just don't really like us humans. So there we go. So the cat on the Dovrefell is a story about these trolls that lived in the Dovrefell. But we have to start this story with a king who, he had a bit of a thing about collecting different animals. He was a zoologist himself, I guess. And he used to like to collect really exotic uh, animals from far flung places and people would bring them to him and he'd pay them a very good amount of money for them. This hunter had managed to wrangle himself a polar bear. Now he'd gone all the way up to, to, you know, far past Greenland in order to get this polar bear. Back when we did have a lot more polar bears, I would not suggest uh, that um, wrangling a polar bear these days is either advisable or ethical, so don't try it. But um, the, uh, this hunter had done this. And in the scuffle, if you like, the polar bear had become injured, unfortunately. So uh, the hunter had nursed the polar bear back to health, got to a point, uh, I mean, it was not altruistic. It got to a point where he could now walk the polar bear back down through Greenland and Iceland and down to Norway and all the way down to where the king was. And over time, um, I forget what the word is now for that, uh, that relationship between somebody that is uh, held against their will and how they suddenly sometimes become friends with the, with the person it's, it's a complicated word, isn't it? Um, something syndrome. Anyway, so that we don't, Stockholm syndrome, thank you. Perhaps this is what the polar bear had, but he had, uh, not to belittle that of course, but he had uh, developed a um, friendship with the hunter and they'd become good traveling companions, if you like. And he was uh, following the hunter and the hunter would feed him with fish and whatever else he could find for the polar bear. But it was dark, it was winter and winter up, in that part of the world up in the north gets very dark. Uh, there's very, very little sunlight. The sun never really gets very far above the horizon because of course the sun's still there, you just can't see it. So he'd been traveling for a long time. It had got very dark uh, and he needed somewhere to shelter just to get out of the cold a bit. So you can imagine his delight when he saw this one house with a little tiny light on in the middle of the tundra that was at the bottom of the Dovrefell. And he headed towards that light. Now, back then it was the custom that if somebody came and knocked on your door, you didn't turn them away because these were hard times. People needed shelter, they needed food, and it was kind of like a give and take. So you knew if you went and knocked on somebody else's door, they would, they would give you uh, comfort and food. And so uh, this was what you gave in return. So when this hunter knocked on the door with this massive polar bear and the uh, man and his family who lived in the house, a man opens the door, his name is Halvor. And he looks the hunter up and down with the polar bear and the hunter starts off with his spiel of, I really need somewhere to shelter please and just a little bit of food. And I know this looks like a great big bear and you're not gonna want that in your house, but I promise you it's not a problem. It, 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 will, it uh, will not cause you any problem. I've got it under control. 
And Halvor says to the hunter, he says, well, you know, it is not me and my family that I am concerned about because we will not be staying here tonight. We are going down into the city because tonight is Christmas Eve. And of course, the hunter hadn't realised this because he'd lost track of time travelling in the dark. So tonight is Christmas Eve, he said. And the thing is about Christmas Eve round here is that the trolls, they come down from the mountains and they insist that we create them an enormous feast on the table that they will then eat and feast on, funnily enough. Uh, and they will make a horrendous mess and a lot of mischief and you really don't want to be around. It's like uh, there is a story in Iceland of the Yule Lads. They're a bit like the Yule Lads. They'll come down, they'll eat you out of house and home, cause a lot of trouble and then be on their way. And we've created this <coughs> arrangement with them so that they don't bother us for the rest of the year. So they come down and they make the most of it on Christmas Eve. So myself, my wife, my children and our family cat, we're out, we're gone. If you really want shelter here, well, you're welcome to it, but I wouldn't advise it if I were you. And the hunter says, do you know what, I'll be all right. I have got the polar bear, it'll be okay. So uh, <coughs> Halva sets the, uh, the hunter up with a small bowl of porridge and he says, do not eat anything off the table because the trolls will know and that will cause us trouble. There's a small cot bed at the end of the uh, living room, which you can pull the curtain across. Hopefully the trolls won't notice you're there. So, I mean, this fire is joining in with us, isn't it? <laughs> so he does just that. He goes in and uh, he sees this table laden with all the food that you can imagine, all the different meats. So broiled meat, boiled meat, baked meat, roasted meat, fried meat, everything you could possibly do basically to a joint of meat. And there is hams, there is beef, there's venison, there is boar, there uh, is, uh, what else might there be, lamb. There is every type of meat possible on the table. Uh, and then there's all the food, the custards, and there is uh, fruits um, which have been put in mead. Uh, there is cream and butter and sausages. And oh, it's amazing, this feast. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's, Craig's clearly been there and cooked all of that beforehand. There's a huge table full of this food. But the hunter does exactly what Halvor has told him and he takes his little pot of porridge and he sits down uh, on the side of the cot bed and he eats his porridge while the polar bear makes itself comfortable underneath the feasting table. You can imagine the polar bear spread out, puts its head on its paws and it quite happily goes to sleep while the hunter is eating his porridge. And then he gets into the cot bed and he pulls the curtain across and he makes himself as warm as possible because they have got a little fire going, nice. And, uh, and he waits to see whether what Halvor said actually comes true. He doesn't have to wait long. When the uh, clock uh, in the, uh, above the fireplace starts to strike midnight, in come the trolls. There are trolls of all shapes and sizes, long trolls, thin trolls, round trolls. There are trolls with long noses, trolls with little tiny noses, trolls with no noses at all. And they're of all sorts of shapes and sizes, like I say, tall and short, and they are making an awful racket. I don't know how the polar bear's sleeping through it, but he still is sleeping. Halvor uh, has warned him about this, so obviously the uh, hunter knows that it's going to be this noisy and there's no way he's going to sleep through it. But what he does do is he does pull the curtain so he can see what's going on. And as he watches, he sees these trolls start to lift up bowls of gravy and drink them and they end up in their beards and down their fronts. They're picking up the cream and the butter and they're just throwing it at each other. They really just don't care. They're just having a jolly good time, basically a troll party. They are 
making such a racket that none of them have actually noticed the polar bear that's sleeping beneath the table. Apart from one of the shortest trolls, because they're about eye level with this polar bear. The shortest troll looks at this polar bear, well, it looks quite interesting. And he reaches out one long finger, which is far too long for the hand it's on, to be quite honest, and he pokes the nose of the bear. It doesn't wake, it carries on gently snoring. And the troll's not having this. So he goes again and he pokes it a little bit harder on the nose. This time the bear sort of swipes it away, puts his paw back under his chin and carries on sleeping. Troll is not happy with this response. So he reaches up onto the table and he pulls down a blood sausage. He raises it high and he whacks it down on the nose of the polar bear, shouting, does Kitty want a sausage? As he does this, as you can imagine, the polar bear does not want the sausage and instead it rises up with an almighty roar and it starts to, like bowling pins, knock all of the trolls over who are now all screaming and running for the mountains. They are running out of the door, they're grabbing whatever food they can, whatever isn't already in their beards and off they go up, the Dov across the Dovrefell and up into the mountains. The hunter, well, he's quite amused by this whole turn of events. Uh, he pulls the curtain back across and he goes back to sleep because he knows that those trolls are not going to bother them for the rest of the night. In the morning, there is an awful lot of mess in the house. Uh, the hunter knows that he's been told just to leave it all as it is, so he doesn't try to do anything. Instead, he takes the polar bear and he carries on on his journey. And that's the last we see of the hunter. Halva and his family, they return uh, with his children and the cat and they start to clean up the house. It's sort of midday on Christmas Day by the time they arrive and they're cleaning off the butter from the hearth so that nobody slips on it and the cream from the ceiling and well you can imagine what it's like, they're cleaning it up. The days roll on, weeks, months, a year has rolled on and we're back to Christmas Eve again and Halvor is getting the wood ready for the trolls and he's made another feast again, like he expects them to want. Um, and he's getting the wood ready so that there is plenty in the fire for the trolls. While he's doing this, he's out by the woodshed cutting up the wood. Whilst he's doing this, that little tiny troll I told you about appears, pokes his head around the house and he goes, Halvor? Halvor goes, yes. Halvor, do you still have your cat? He says. Well, yes, says Halvor, it's a really fine white cat she is. Yes, she's in by the hearth at the moment. Oh, says the troll. Hmm. In fact, says Halvor, she's had seven kittens and they're all as big and fierce as she is they are. He's very proud of this fact. Ah, says the troll and runs up across the tundra and up the mountain across the Dobrafell because, as I'm sure you know, listener, what the troll thinks is a cat is actually a polar bear. And so that is how a polar bear solved a troll problem. Thank you very much. <laughs> there we go. So that's one of my favourite Christmas stories to tell. Um, and it's a, a traditional Scandinavian story. So it's quite conceivable that they may have told, they may have knowledge of polar bears if they'd wandered down far. You never know, do you? <laughs> so yes. I've not come across it before. No, it's a good one. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very much enjoyed being on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you. See you all next time. Yep. Bye. Bye.
If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more, remember to like and subscribe and give the show a rating. You can also help keep the show going by becoming a Patreon where you'll get early access to all episodes. Or check out my range of merch on my store. Links are in the episode description. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 